0: It's just a little bit Welcome to Write Good. I'm R.S. Benedict. And that screaming is hardly the cat. We here at Write Good work very hard to create thoughtful dialogues designed to help our listeners write good. But there are many writing advice columns that won't help you write good. That will actually encourage you to write bad or, at best, mediocre. There's a lot of money and clout to be made giving writing advice and a lot of conventional wisdom. But how much of that is really helpful? and how much of it can steer a fledgling writer in the wrong direction in this episode we are joined by matty lewis an avid reader gothic writer clergyman enthusiast and active member of the kitty sneezes discord where write good fans congregate to work on our own projects give each other feedback and shit talk book twitter an invitation is a dollar on our patreon that's at patreon.com/writegood thanks for joining us Matty, why are you so interested in bad writing advice?
1: It's kind of fascinating to me just like how much of it there is and how easy it is to like take the bad writing advice at face value and not realize how it's actually hurting your writing. And especially kind of where I'm at where, like I've taken some college creative writing courses. I've written for fun since I was probably like an elementary schooler. And I'm kind of just getting to the point where I feel more confident in it. And I'm really starting to look at, what is uh, actually good writing advice and what is not. And the more I look, the more I realize a lot of it is actually kind of bad or at least only circumstantially good.
0: Right, right. And I've seen that too. I've been in, or at least dipped my toe into a lot of different writing communities, both online and in person. And I've found a bunch of times like, I'm getting advice, I'm getting criticism that's really unsuitable especially for me or, or I'm getting critiques on my work where I'm at a point where I'm confident in, enough in my own work where I can listen to criticism and think like, no, that's just wrong.
1: Yeah, I, I know you don't want to have like – And that's fine for me. Have like a big head about it, but you do have to – Yeah. Like the more confident you get, you do get to a point where you realize like, okay, this might work sometimes, but it doesn't work necessarily right. in this instance. I don't know. I, I tend to work on the – um assumption that if one person says something's not working, it could be their opinion. And you kind of need to like, gauge how much you trust their opinion and kind of trust your gut a little bit. If a lot of people say the same thing is wrong, either you're Mm -hmm. in really a bad group for the type of writing that you do, or they're probably right. A lot of people are, yeah, the more people say it's wrong, and the more smart people say it's wrong, (laughs) the more likely it is to be wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, like, for me, if I, I can usually tell when a bit of advice is unsuitable, but something that I, I find a little worrying is seeing, say, like a new writer who's not very confident, who's kind of new at it, going to it, and getting a lot of really bad, misleading advice, and that just makes them write worse. And ugh, it it it's it's bad. I don't like that. It's it's a bad thing.
1: It can kind of, it can kind of make people, especially if you're not sort of stubborn and, and a little bit by nature, I think it can kind of make you, like, has, like I said in the intro, it can make you write, write bad, actually, or uh, lead you to not take risks that would have actually worked well or been cool because the conventional wisdom wisdom right. and scarecrow quotes definitely says that, that you shouldn't.
0: Right, right. You'll see someone whose writing isn't there yet, but they have some kind of interesting ideas, and they're being a little experimental, and you'll see the group kind of try to hammer down those those that experimental sort of creative explorative nature you'll see people trying to like just shave down all the interesting sharp edges and it's like and and just turn it into something completely formulaic and bland and it's horrifying
1: yeah i i'm definitely at a point where i've i've read a lot i've written a fair amount like and I'm definitely at a point where I'm, I'd i rather see someone try something interesting and kind of not quite get it than see something that's more or less competent, but so by the book that it's just not interesting.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So why don't we start with a couple of really classic bits of writing advice? Sure. Okay, Harley. Are you all right with that? Can we start with some classic writing advice? And probably the biggest thing that, that people hear that writers... Bur- Repeat over and over again, is the three words, show, don't tell.
1: <laughs> I think that one is, it's definitely one of my biggest peeves to see it because I see so many people, especially in, I guess more like amateur groups, people will repeat it without seeming to really understand what it means or when it applies. I feel like a lot of like the, the little writing proverbs, it's, it's very much like, uh, like the biblical book of Proverbs, all the different Proverbs in there, the wisdom is not so much in the sayings themselves as it is in knowing when they apply. And I feel like a lot of writing truisms, it's the same thing. So I see a lot of times people will say, well, you should you should show, not tell this, but they don't really know what that means or when that's appropriate.
0: Right, right. And, and I think the reason people give that is that a lot of... Beginning writers start a story with basically like, "Let me tell you about myself. I'm like this, and I'm like that, and I'm so cool, and I'm a badass, but I'm really shy, and blah blah blah." And it's like awful and tedious. And it's like, no, it's better to show us these character traits just through the narrative naturally itself. But right,
1: it's like the classic. The one I see a lot is like in a book, even some published stuff. I've seen it now again, where the narration will see that a care say that a character is so so very smart and so very clever but they never actually do anything all that smart right that would be a case where i'm like yeah show me them doing something smart just don't tell don't just tell me that they're smart
0: Right. and that would be a case
1: where that's a valid criticism but you'll see it sometimes where it's like if you you know you say a character x is angry they're like well you should show me that not tell me that and i think it (sighs) it leads to like over describing physical like body language minutiae.
0: His face turned red and he balled his fists.
1: And it's, it's-
0: Tears began to well up in her eyes, her lips quivered.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's really, it's always very samey, Like because there's only so many physiological reactions a person will have to any given emotion. So it's like, unless you're saying something more interesting, it's just, I don't know, it seems almost more, almost more cliche than just saying he's angry.
0: Right, right. Right. And 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 I feel like there's a, a trend, I think, in o- in overemphasis or, or a tendency in a lot of f- fiction writing to try to write the way you'd write a movie.
1: Oh, and definitely. They're
0: different th- and in movies, you got to show everything.
1: Right. Well, in, because, in movies, it's, it's stupid if you have your actor say, I'm angry, when you actually could just have your actor physically, like, clench his right. fists, make the vein right. on his neck pop out. Like, then that works. But in, in a book, you're just kind of it's it's wasted space sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's it's a different medium, and you're not using you're not using the medium to its it strengths. And honestly, sometimes telling is just more efficient. Like yeah. you could say, you know, tears welled up in her eyes, her lips quivered, versus just saying like, you know, that made her sad. Well, obviously, in a slightly more eloquent way than that. But
1: <laughs> well, I think where show don't tell, especially, and I think with character emotions, really is where it gets the worst. Is it's like you are losing and attempting to show it. You're losing the chance to get inside the character's head and kind of, right. Which is what's good with a book. You can't really do that in a movie unless you have like a voice error over narration, which very rarely works. But if I'm writing a book, I can get into, so not only can I get into why my character is sad, I can get into more descriptive of the emotion, which tells me a lot more than just the physical, the, the show that the character is sad. Right. It almost reminds me, and this is maybe a weird tangent, but I used to do forum role-playing like all the time. And one (laughs) of the things that drove me crazy was whenever uh, someone would take something that I had written in interior dialogue or like the character was thinking or feeling, but not saying or or showing necessarily and would respond as if their character somehow knew that even though they couldn't. And it got so irritating that I just stopped writing interior monologue altogether with some people, other than, like, the people that I knew wouldn't, you know, do stupid stuff with it. And my writing was ass. It was just miserable to read. It wasn't very fun to write. It kind of killed my enthusiasm. And reading stuff where they are so into showing it and not telling it, 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 like, gives me non-flashbacks of of how I I had to adapt my (laughs) writing in that crappy way just to play a game.
0: Right. Right. And something I'm going to point out, like one of my favorite quotes from The Great Gatsby, it's kind of telling. Like, I'm just going to Is quote it right it the Careless it right here People to, one? The Careless People. It's so fucking beautiful. And I'm going to quote it here for our listeners, although I'm assuming you guys have already read this book. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Like, that's kind of telling, but it's, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful quotation, and it so perfectly sums up a certain type of person. Like, it's fucking great.
1: Yeah, it's it's really, really wonderful. And a lot of it is just the quality of the writing is fantastic. And it's one of those where, like, someone would be like, "Um, you need to cut that. That's telling it would be really stupid, especially in this instance, because the book already does show it, too. But telling it just sums it up, and it's it's.
0: In such a perfect way. It's
1: really good. It's very tidy, very neat. And just, I mean, if it were less well-written, obviously that would be one thing, but it's really, really well-written.
0: Oh yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And and I, I worry that the sticking too hard to the show-don't-tell rule can make you cut stuff like that. And that's awful.
1: I think a lot about the complaints that I see sometimes about A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, people complaining that it it tells too much. And that's another thing where the language in it is so beautiful that it it really works. And it kind of has that mythic feel. And it's like when you're writing a myth or a fairy tale, you don't write it like it was, you know, a page turner. You write it, you write it differently.
0: Right. And you do tell a lot in myths and fairy tales. You tell very often. Yeah, the Little Mermaid. She wanted a soul. She fell in love with the with the prince because he was so handsome. That's what you do,
1: and it works because you don't need to go into all of the the minutia, show every little thing because that's that's not what it's about. It's a totally different feel, and like I get like subjectively, you might not like that, but it's still a valid artistic choice.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, especially if you're writing fantasy, that's. You're trying to go for a mythic feeling, so you're going to go for more of a mythic writing style. It makes perfect sense.
1: Theoretically, you would think, but yeah, tangentially, I I find it—it's always easy to tell if a fantasy writer, if their first meaningful experience with like the fantastic in fiction, what it was, it's really easy to tell the people who grew up reading fairy tales and mythology from the people who grew up playing d d
0: Yeah, playing d playing video games, or watching movies, you can totally tell when it's like, okay, your your introduction to fantasy is kind of cheesy movies and video games, where the hero sort of learns everything by talking to someone in a tavern. Yeah. Where it's like you don't need you don't need the history of the realm explained in dialogue by a guy in a tavern. You can just put it in the text. That's what fucking Tolkien does. Like come on.
1: I think a lot of people get the wrong message or get the wrong um idea from Tolkien. They take the wrong ideas away, but that's probably like could be like another episode. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 And and sometimes like the the desire to show and not tell what ends up happening is especially if you're doing like explication, if especially if you're handling background is what, what could have been handled in the narration just ends up kind of clunkily being shoved into these massive chunks of dialogue. And it's like, this is terrible.
1: You see that a lot in anything with magic, especially if there's any kind of like mentor figures, they'll explain all of this in the dialogue. And it's just, just miserably boring to read. Um, Or sometimes in, in, one of the rare fantasies that, like, actually gives a crap about religion, since most of them don't, but, um, they'll, like, have, like, someone giving a sermon or something, and it's just, uh, it doesn't work very well. It's, it's really obvious that that's why you're doing it, and it's not necessarily for the story, it's, it's for the world building, and it's just, it doesn't work. It's not important.
0: Right. So, to to make a long story short telling is okay sometimes don't don't tell everything but like it's okay don't be afraid of telling it's fine like all so many of the great 19th century novels it's like when they introduce a character they will tell you their entire genealogy and everything about them and it's great it's great i love it
1: oh yeah it's fun <laughs> Well, especially when you get some some of the like Dickensy writers who are really really good at it and they make it like fun. Oh, yeah, his
0: character descriptions are awesome. Like I'm
1: not the biggest Dickens fan, but I could read Dickens' character descriptions for days.
0: Yeah, or or a more contemporary. I think um Douglas Adams in his novels there's a whole lot of telling, but it's like really witty and fun.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it's hard to do like other than slapstick humor. Uh, you kind of have to tell for most other kinds of humor. Right more comedic books tend to be a little bit more telly and, and it's fine, it works.
0: Right, like the bit at the beginning where the where the guy who's um, the constri- the demolition crew at Arthur Dent's house, one of the guys is descended from uh, Genghis Khan, but he doesn't know it. All he knows is that he has a fondness for fur hats and keeps having these fantasies of setting people on fire. Don't I don't know all. how to sell, show that, but it's a great little detail and it's well told and it's really funny. <laughs> And I would hate to lose something like that. Right. Okay. So that's like the big, the big one. That's like the main bit of advice that people get that I think can steer them wrong. Another one that I see over and over and over again is never use the passive voice. Never use the passive voice. And oh no.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) another one that's so situational. Like there are situations where you definitely don't want to use passive voice, but people trying to make it like a blanket rule. There are situations where it's uh, better, actually, or somewhere it's kind of like, it's fine either way. Like, if I'm writing a crime thriller, a perfectly acceptable sentence is, the body was found behind the dumpster of Waffle House. That's fine. Right. It's also passive voice, but there's nothing wrong with it. Right. And it's kind of one of those two where in dialogue, sometimes it depends, like, on the character. Some characters would use that sort of more slow, stilted, almost like a lab report speak, and that's normal. It, it can be a good tool right. for characterization, actually, I think. Oh
0: yeah, like if somebody's a real fucking weasel and they're trying to avoid blame for something they did, they're totally gonna use the passive voice. Oh
1: yeah, just kind of try and weasel out of it, get that kind of legalese vibe going.
0: That sort of, mistakes were made in this instance. Uh.
1: Right. <laughs> Like, you, you, you would see that when someone's trying to not own up to something they did. There are a lot of circumstances. I'm sorry if
0: your feelings were hurt. Right. Oh. Right. And I think, I think what a lot of this comes from is a confusion between different meanings of the word passive. Right? Like, the passive voice in this here, passive is being used as a grammatical term. That doesn't mean the same as its general use. So I've seen a lot of people, a lot of writers who really ought to know better suggest that, oh, a passive voice means a passive character, it means a passive passage. And that's not true. They think, oh, the active voice, active action, action is a thrill ride. And like, no, all the passive voice does is it puts emphasis on the recipient of an action rather than on the party who performs that action. And that's all. And you might have a very valid reason to do that. Like your, your corpse example over there, murder investigation, we're interested in the corpse, we're not interested so much in the Waffle House employee who stumbled upon the corpse. We want to know about the body because that's what our focus is here. So yeah, the passive makes perfect sense for that.
1: <sighs> right, uh, yeah, unless we were in this instance interested in the Waffle House employee who found the body, then we would probably do, we would do active, but... If it's about the investigation. Right.
0: right. If you're the detective, you're not going to focus quite so much on, well, I mean, you'd interview the person who discovered right. the body and, and eliminate them as a suspect. But like, the thing is, let's check out the body.
1: Right. Yeah, your your forensics expert isn't going to be so much about the, uh, mm-hmm. the Waffle House employee. They're going to be about why this body is behind the dumpster and what has happened to this body. Even if you were to try and like phrase some of the stuff as active, so it would be like, somebody stabbed the body or like somebody stabbed the body Mm -hmm. that sounds stupid like the body was stabbed for like you know sus or Mm -hmm. not suspect but um corpse was stabbed 37 times like yeah the passive voice just kind of it makes more sense there
0: well especially because if you're saying someone stabbed the corpse 37 times you don't know might not be the same person
1: right yeah an
0: unknown party or parties stabbed the corpse 37 times and like that gets pretty awkward real fast
1: yeah yeah definitely um so passive voice is it's not bad. It's just you need to know when to use it and when not to.
0: Right. I think this is another one of those things where a lot of beginning writers overuse it because it's used in academic writing and they think like, oh, this is how smart people write. So that's what I'm going to do. Right. And they use it too much and it's really bad. But instead of like go, taking a more nuanced view and saying, okay, you want to limit your use of this and here's why you use it. Too, too many instructors or, or critiquers just say like oh never use it and that's 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 really bad advice that's that's lazy that's too extreme
1: yeah that was one I actually I used to teach freshman comp as a graduate um, graduate student and that was one where I was like I, I every year I would break that one down and I'm like okay here's what passive voice is here's why you want to avoid it here's when you don't want to avoid it you don't need to never use it but there are some times when using it makes you look uncertain or it makes things clunkier than they need to be. But there are other times when it's, it's totally acceptable and it's fine.
0: Right. And telling people don't use it, it's ridiculous. It's like looking at someone who over salted their food one time and being like, never use salt again. Right. Like, are you kidding me?
1: <laughs> the one I was guilty of was uh, I, I did tell students, like, if you don't know how to use a semicolon, either look it up or don't use them they're not really necessary for anything. They're stylistic flourishes. Please don't use them wrong. I will explain to you right. how to use them, but if you still don't get it, it's okay. You don't need to.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're not essential, but
1: no. Well, but I think it was I, I
0: wouldn't say like never. I love
1: them. <laughs> semicolons, so I was kind of like Oh
0: yeah. Like, I use them a lot, especially oh, if to. Sometimes they fit a certain character voice a bit, but we're going to talk about semicolons later. <laughs> Anyway, i um, going from the passive voice to active and agency. I think there's a bit of advice that I see a lot is that characters must have agency. And by agency, they mean a very limited, very specific kind of agency, meaning you have to be an action hero. Characters have to be action heroes. Characters have to be fucking John Wick. And yeah, I see I that. S- I see that a lot from SFF more so.
1: Definitely. I see it. I don't dip into the sci-fi side of things very much but i see it a lot on fantasy and Mm -hmm. it's it's very limited like i see it a lot applied to female characters which i guess kind of ties into the last episode with gretchen um is you know that's one of the big complaints i see about female characters is they don't have agency because they're not i don't know rebellious princesses or whatever and i'm like you can still have agency without swinging a broadsword and you can still have like a character can still have agency without it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean they affect things, it means that they they try in whatever capacity yeah. they are able, and that, you know, it's not just a camera, basically, that follows the things that are going on. And even that yeah. sometimes I don't think is always bad, like, shoot, uh Nick Carraway is basically a camera, like, he doesn't really affect the plot of the Great Gatsby. Oh, yeah at all we get his character in as much as we get from his narration not so much from what he does and it's still a great book
0: yeah the one thing he does is he he sort of sets up in a you know a, a little hookup between daisy and gatsby but like that could have happened some other way that nick didn't have to do that yeah he's just sort of observational and that's fine i mean i'm thinking of 1984 how much agency does winston smith have he writes in his journal he has some thoughts. Um, he he sort of passive-aggressively does aerobics badly. He makes out with his girlfriend, and then he gets captured and tortured. Like, he's, I guess by the standards of fantasy, he's not that, he's kind, He's doesn't have a ton of agency, but, like, that makes sense considering book. the society he's in.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. You it know? would kind of be weird if he, if he was going. George Orwell couldn't make the points he was trying to make with that book if, Winston had been John Wick,
0: right? Right. He's not Katniss. He's like a regular guy, and this is what this is sort of what the book is, and it's fine. And this very narrow, very limited idea of agency, first of all, I feel is unrealistic because, like, let's be real. Most a lot of people have their sort of agency limited by our circumstances, by our social class, by race, by gender, by sexuality, by like. Society kind of limits what you're able to do without being horrifically punished.
1: Right. And I think sometimes that's that's more interesting to, at least to me, and I, have a, I kind of like sort of passive main characters, but to me, sometimes it's more interesting for a book to look at the ways in which someone wouldn't have agency or ha- would have their agency limited is sometimes more interesting. Right. But again... Right. In order to appreciate that, I think you have to like books for more than just, like, feel good, like, because they're they're not, they're not happy books, usually. Um,
0: Right. Or or they're sort of contemplative and internal books, like, that focus on internal conflict. Is that agency to sort of wrestle with stuff internally, not by this,
1: by this narrow standard? By this standard. And I think the the over-focus on it can, can lead, not just a bad writing habit, but a bad, like, personal habit to lead you to just not even consider the interior life of another person as being worthwhile only what they right only the the actions they take are worthwhile and i don't think that's the case i think especially because a lot of the people who do have limited agency in books are the same people who do have limited agency in real life and if you're only looking at characters is can they bootstrap or can they not bootstrap then that attitude sometimes can cross over into looking at people that way and it's eh, the people are more complex than that i'm thinking of um one of my favorite recent books and it's probably my favorite like debut novel that i've read in a very long time is um there is a book called the Witchfinder's sister by beth underdown and it's like a fictionalized account of and the witch trials in East Anglia with Matthew Hopkins. And the narrator is Matthew Hopkins' fictional sister. And one of the, because I'm a masochist, I decided I love this book. I wonder what other people are thinking about it. So I read oh, some no. Goodreads reviews. And most of them were fairly positive, but almost all of the negative ones were like, yeah, Alice Hopkins doesn't do anything. And I'm like, oh my
0: She'd God. She'd be burned at the stake if she did. Like,
1: she would be so screwed if she did. And that's kind of the whole point. Like, she can't do anything, really. And it's such a good book. And Just to see, like, the point missed so terribly. Um, The other really good Miss the Point ones was, like, I didn't like this book because all the men in it were bad. (laughs) I'm like, it's about the witch. It's about witch hunts. Like, of course the men in it are bad. They're witch hunters.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, Goodreads reviews. Oh. Good lord.
1: <laughs> I think that one actually might have been a YouTube video, because, like I said, I'm a masochist.
0: <sighs> wow, you're really masochist. Uh, watch, a, watch a review of anything by a man with a terrible beard shouting on YouTube You into know what, a camera. I think he did
1: have a terrible beard. Of course! And it's a shame, because oh, a good amazing. beard is a beautiful thing.
0: Oh yeah, good beard's wonderful. It's wonderful. Anyway, yeah, so agency eh, no it's overrated you yeah. don't have if you're if you're talented if you're eloquent a character doesn't need to have that kind of agency and that that's it
1: <laughs> yeah it just depends on there's lots of reasons to not do it
0: yeah yeah one more bit of advice classic bit of advice that I think we need to sort of temper or or look at differently is don't use adjectives or adverbs i don't mean like limit it, obviously you should limit it, and especially don't use adverbs in dialogue tags for the most oh, part. God. But there, there's this idea of like, you should never use those. Like, are you fucking kidding me? I think- Are you fucking kidding oh, me? I Fuck you, strunken white.
1: I think it's because like, when you're learning how to do descriptive writing in like elementary school and maybe up into middle school, like they really hype, like you need to learn how to use adverbs and adjectives to make your writing real descriptive uh, and then you get told, like in high school, "Oh no, that's all a lie. Don't do that." <laughs> and it's right. <laughs> it's really um, kind of confusing and frustrating, but they never explain like when you don't need one. So, like if you have, so a lot of it is people will take a kind of a, a non-descriptive verb and tack an adverb to it to be more descriptive when literally all they needed to do was just pick a more specific verb. So, like someone. Writing run swiftly, which, first off, that's redundant. You don't really run any other way. But right. you can do dash, darted, sprint. There's a lot that are more specific than that that sound better. So in that case, yeah, the adverb is dumb. It doesn't sound good. It's not doing anything.
0: Right, right.
1: Or Or people will, like, tack on, like, way too many adjectives, thinking right. that, like, more description is better. And I'm like... You don't yeah, have to when tell every me it's,
0: noun when every noun in a passage has one or two adjectives, it's like no.
1: it makes things look like it makes it hard to tell what's actually supposed to be important when you're giving everything an equal amount of description. right. And sometimes it just it gets clunky and ugly, and it's like, pick the most important detail and run. Like you don't need to tell me the apple is round, red, juicy, and crisp, which one of those is important in this instant. right. Or maybe you do. Right, I don't know. Right. Sometimes stylistically, you might.
0: Yeah. I mean, if this this the character is like obsessing over this apple, like maybe he's really hungry and he really wants this apple. And it's just like, oh, my
1: God, this apple's so good. Right. Then you might go a little more more into loading up those adjectives. I think sometimes, too, right. there's just there are just th- things that you can't really. Um, it's really, really hard to explain without an adjective or an adverb. Um, or imply like um, my favorite adverb is viscerally because you really, really have a hard time implying like not as not so much attached to like a physical action but attached to like a feeling like wanting something viscerally. There's really not a lot of ways you can describe that without that adverb, unless you want to go into a whole long showing sequence. That's just like, you're making my eyes bleed. please stop.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Alright, so those are sort of like the basic altogether principles that they tell beginning writers and and then too many beginning writers will like take them as just total dogma and apply them universally and that's a problem. So let's switch to looking at bits of writing advice from some published writers, which I I, I think are kind of questionable. Uh, Let's start with Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan Franzen released a, a list of uh, writing tips that I found were startlingly unhelpful. I remember I was like,
1: when that one came out,
0: yes. Right. Write in the third person unless you you really want to write in the first person. It's like, okay. Yeah. How does that help? What is What? Useless. But here's one that I really, I, I guess two points that I find relate to each other, which kind of great on me and and it sounds a little bit like old man yells at cloud but the first one is when information becomes free and universally accessible voluminous research for a novel is devalued along with it i really don't think that's true
1: i don't think that's true either now it's almost like you have less of an excuse like right back in the day when having to do a lot of research meant you had to actually physically go somewhere or find someone who you know who was willing to talk to you about it that knew about it you almost had more, I almost give would give more leeway to someone who just might not be able to find the information, but now you can, unless it's like really scientific and under a paywall, you can find almost anything. You have to be a little bit judicious in figuring out if it's actually good and correct information. But I don't know, I feel like I give people less leeway when it's something that you could literally Google.
0: Mm. Or something I'm going to point out is just because the information is available doesn't mean that people will actively seek it out.
1: Right. Like
0: we have almost a glut of it where it's like so hard to kind of focus or just look at anything. And for me, like a really carefully researched novel that curates information and kind of packages it to you in a tidy way and an accessible way is like, it's fucking awesome. Like, it's just great sorting it out and putting it in front of me and being like, here here it is. And be like, oh, cool. There Thank are a
1: few things that excite me as much as when I see a historical fiction book that has a bibliography. <laughs> nice. It's really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just, I don't know. I, I It's kind of like, no, that, that still is cool. Like, I like to read a book and then learn something. That's one of the reasons I like historical fiction in particular is I like history and... Sometimes reading textbooks is really dull and dry, but a really, really well-researched historical fiction novel. Like, that's cool. I get to learn stuff and also be entertained. It's great. Win-win.
0: Right. Just the idea of, like, just curation of information, curation of of content, like, is is something incredibly valuable and really important, and research is a part of that. Okay. So point 2 of Jonathan Franzen is it's doubtful that anyone with an internet connection at his workplace is writing good fiction.
1: Does he mean workplace here like the desk where you write or does he mean like the office you work in?
0: I'm I'm guessing he means the desk where you write.
1: I would assume cuz like um I got an internet connection at my workplace but I'm definitely not doing any fiction writing there.
0: Right. I don't know if he knows that many writers have day jobs. I don't know. Maybe he's not aware.
1: Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to take that and interpret that to mean he means like whatever the writer space that they do their writing in. On one hand, yeah, like sometimes you go down the internet rabbit holes when you really should be writing or you pull up Twitter and scroll for that for, you know, 30 minutes that you could have, 30 minutes being generous that you, you know, could have used writing. But I don't know. I don't. I don't think I agree with that at all.
0: Yeah, I keep having to look stuff up. Right now, I'm working on a historical novel. The main character is a med school dropout, so I I gotta look up stuff about like nine about early nineteenth century medicine because I don't fucking know it. Yeah. and it's something that the character is gonna have in his head. It's gonna be really important. Like I I don't know what they thought the brain looked like back then. It was probably crazy, right? Um, and and looking that stuff up, I think it's being able to have that information is really, really valuable. And it adds a layer of authenticity. And I don't know what he expects me to do to just like not to just stop and then go to the library, I guess. Like, yes, let me stop writing for the day and then go find, uh, you know, a a, a medical textbook that was published in 1916. No problem. Right. That's fine.
1: And it's really, um, it's kind of hard to like... Because sometimes if you're, I guess, especially if you're writing a historical fiction, or if you're trying to write, like, a more realistic science fiction where you actually have to get the sci-fi kind of stuff kind of right, sometimes if you, you can't just put a placeholder in and move on. Sometimes you're like, I actually have to know this, because if I get it wrong, that will have, like, a domino effect, and I'll have to change, like, everything. So it's making more work for yourself if you just put a place if you just try you know I'll write what I think and I'll fix it later because sometimes that just breaks everything right. you have to know what's right
0: right I feel like generally the sense I got from Franzen's list was that shutting yourself off from the world completely makes you a better writer and I really I really quibble with that I really quibble with that a lot that's
1: a very um lady of shallot argument <laughs> <laughs> if, in order to do art, you must be sequestered. If you look out to the real world, you will get distracted by handsome knights and die.
0: <laughs> right. Oh gosh. So, yeah. Jonathan Franzen's list not the best. Okay. So let's go on to George Orwell. Uh, here's here's a quote that I feel like it sums up a lot of the mo of much of writing Twitter. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout with some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven on by some demon whom one can neither resist nor understand. <sighs> you don't have to write it. No. You don't have to write it. No one's making you do this.
1: I do know some you people to do this. who write who do feel that way, and I kind of feel sorry for them. Um, like, Get like,
0: another job then, dude.
1: Yeah, I just... There's, I, I think it's important to have You're a creative wilder. outlet. But it doesn't have to be writing. If you would prefer to embroider, you can do that. If you prefer to garden, you can do that. If you would prefer to paint right. war game miniatures, you can do that. You don't have to write. Like
0: Right, right.
1: And I think, I don't know, there's this, this whole like the the depressed artist sort of archetype. And it, yeah. not just for writing, but any kind of art where there's this weird assumption that somehow suffering for your art makes it better. <laughs> and I'm like... I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think having some experience can make things better. Um, Maybe having had suffered can give you a little bit more perspective or more empathy or whatever. But I don't think you have to constantly be in the thick of it to produce good work.
0: Yeah. And I just I don't get that mindset of like, oh, I hate writing like so many so many fucking posts from, like, the the big accounts that love to talk about writing are all about, like, oh, I hate writing. I'm going to procrastinate so I don't have to write more. It's like, this isn't high school. This isn't homework. You don't have to do this. Yeah. You're grown-up. You could do something else with your life. Like, oh, but I'm on a deadline, and, and it's so strong. Okay, well, get another job. Yeah, then if you don't like, like it. You, you want to talk about work stress? Fucking be a waitress then. Shut the fuck up. Do you know how lucky you are to be able to make a living and support yourself purely by your writing?
1: Yeah, that's... Uh, practically unheard of and yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's one of those things where i i feel like part of that it's it's almost it gets tied into partly the suffering makes your art good archetype but also the like kind of capitalist productivity mindset where it's like i hate it but i gotta do it because it's productive and it's like you know what i'm not gonna beat myself up if i don't write for three days or more because I'm out doing other things. I'm a multifaceted human. I have other interests. I have a social life. I work. Like, it's fine. It's okay to take breaks as long as you mm-hmm. don't have a deadline.
0: You know, if writing makes you that miserable, yeah, just take up another hobby then. Yeah. Fucking go lift weights, get real swole. I don't know. Do something else. <laughs> It's just I, I can't stand that mindset and I don't relate to it. When, I mean, I work full time and you know on top of that, on top of like going to the gym regularly, I any bit of time I spend writing, I've got to like carve it out of something else. Yeah. So for me, the idea of like, oh, I hate writing. It's such torture. It's like I I have to decline social invitations. I have to sacrifice other aspects of my life in order to write. So this is like something that's really valuable to me.
1: Right. Why would I do it if I didn't like it? It would free up time that I could use doing other things.
0: Right. Right.
1: I mean, I get yeah. that it's frustrating sometimes. Like we've all had anyone who writes has had a moment when they're like, this is not going my way. I can't figure out how to, to say what I want to say. I don't know where I need to be going. Like that's okay. Yeah. Like, but that doesn't, it shouldn't be like that all the time. You should also sometimes have times where like, Yeah, this is going good. I like this. I'm pleased with this. I'm proud of it. It may not be perfect, but I like what's coming along.
0: Right. Okay, so here's one from Neil Gaiman. Remember, when people tell you something's wrong or doesn't work for them, they are almost always right. When they tell you exactly what they think is wrong and how to fix it, they are almost always wrong.
1: I think that just really depends on who you're talking to.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Almost always right? Like, no, I've gotten... A lot of critique criticism saying, oh, this is wrong, it doesn't work for me, that I know is just fucking wrong. I know is wrong. Like, y- y- all you got to do is visit a Reddit community or Goodreads to find that oh, yeah. critics are not almost always right. And sometimes they just got real bad taste. Holy shit. Yeah. Also, I am not taking advice of any kind from a man who married Amanda Palmer.
1: And eh, that's fair.
0: I am sorry. <laughs> you made a bad choice.
1: Yeah, that one... Um... It's definitely like I, th- I think it really depends on who you're talking to for that one. Like if you're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about, like if I am writing a horror novel and a someone who only reads Regency romances tells me they don't right. like something about my horror novel, they're wrong. Like or more likely than not, they're wrong unless it's like a like mechanical like, hey, this sentence is clunky, sort of thing. Right. But like. I do have, like, I am very fortunate. One of my really, really good friends has, like, pretty much the – she's, like, my ideal reader. She likes exactly the type of stuff that I like to write. She likes to read. She's very, very intelligent. She's very, very well-read. She actually is an editor. So when I send her my stuff, if she tells me, hey, this ain't right, I know immediately, okay, yeah, it's wrong. She's never steered me wrong at all. But even so – and actually, she can usually tell me how to fix it, too. She can be like – Yeah, cut 300 words. You're fine. These three pages, they don't need to happen. And I'll do it and it's better every time. But that's because she knows the type of writing that I do. She likes the type of writing that I do. And she has good taste, or at least taste that is like mine. So I know that, you know, when she says something, I can take it as gospel. Some random on the internet? Absolutely not.
0: Right it's so it's so flattening like oh when people tell you something's wrong they're almost always right are you kidding me what who are you talking to maybe if all of your friends are writers
1: or or are decent at writing yeah
0: yeah but if you're it's just some rando like you gotta you gotta add some qualifiers to that statement neil
1: yeah definitely
0: i just uh, oh my god anyway okay next is kurt vonnegut uh here is a lesson in creative writing. First rule, do not use semicolons. They're transvestite hermaphrodites representing absolutely nothing. All they do is show you've been to college. Okay, first of all, fuck you. That what the fuck? Okay, secondly, I I mean we're go- we're going on the assumption that I don't know ambiguity and and bending is a problem and I don't think that's wrong. No. I don't I don't think there's a problem with that.
1: Yeah, and it's like, it's one of those things, yeah, beginning writers sometimes do overuse them or use them incorrectly, but they work really well. <laughs> when they work, they're really nice. It's right. Kind of an elegant construction. You don't have to use conjunctions constantly, but it still shows the the closeness of two ideas. Right. I don't know. I just think I I read and loved Charlotte Bronte too young to give up on my semicolons. <laughs>
0: Right, and I feel like it fits certain character voices too, like a a story I'm writing on, I'm working on is uh, the main character's very anxious, very neurotic and very much uh, an overeducated academic. So, you know, he's going to use semicolons. Oh yeah. He's going to love semicolons. He's going to shove them in everywhere because that's the kind of person he is. That fits the voice perfectly. So, um I'm I'm going to use semicolons. I I will queer literature with my semicolons. <laughs>
1: yeah I you'd have to pry him out of my cold dead hands I love semicolons
0: yeah not letting him go not letting him go they're good
1: not even for Kurt
0: not for not for you Kurt Vonnegut you know what he probably used a semicolon in his writing somewhere he probably did I'm sure he did
1: we should reread slaughterhouse five and highlight the semicolons yeah
0: there's got to be one in there I'm sure of it okay So now we go from generally good writers giving some questionable advice to a bad writer giving bad advice. And we are going to talk about the, uh, I don't know what adjective to use to describe him, but we're going to talk about fucking Chuck Wendig for a while. (laughs) So um, I deserve hazard pay for reading this, but I I scanned a little bit through his book, The Kick-Ass Writer, 1001 Ways to Write Great Fiction, Get Published, and Earn Your Audience. Although as though Chuck Wendig has ever earned anything in his life except for a severe noogieing. And before we go into the specific bits of advice, I'm just going to point out that Wendig has written a bunch of writing book listicles, and they're literally the same items reused over and over again with a handful of additions. That's it. He's published the same book approximately five times and it's all incredibly basic insipid shit and I find that really kind of disgusting.
1: It's like failing upwards.
0: Yeah because this is 1001, the thousand and one methods right? He, he's written previous books that are like 500 methods and like entire passages are completely identical. He's just reusing, like, entire passages of it and then adding a bunch more fucking stupid things. And I, I find that deeply, deeply objectionable. And also it's like, okay, Chuck Chuck Windig is a writer who's famous sort of for writing about writing and giving writing advice, but who actually, like, cites his own fiction as examples of good writing?
1: I have, I don't think I've ever heard anyone who I would consider generally a pretty well-read person. I don't, I've never said anything about him.
0: Like, I've looked at most of his books, and most of them are novelizations of Star Wars.
1: Yeah. And And, uh, and that's about it. (laughs) It sounds bad. I've definitely looked at books, seen that he has blurbed them, read the back, thought, shoot, this actually sounds kind of good. But Chuck Wendig blurbed it, so maybe I'm not gonna pick it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Just like, uh, no.
1: So they really shouldn't let him blurb stuff, because maybe that book that I was gonna get (laughs) until I saw that- His name was on the cover. Maybe that book. Maybe it's really good. Maybe I'm missing out, but I can't do it. Yeah. Anyway, that's petty enough. Let's go.
0: But generally, like, Wendig is just the living embodiment of those who can't do teach. Yeah. Like, he's a fucking shit writer, but he's made a living just writing about writing, even though he's not good at it at all. And it's fucking ponderous.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a sidebar, if you don't mind. I see... When I go into a bookstore and go to the like writing advice section, it's really fascinating how many of those authors of the books, the advice books, I don't recognize. I'm like, I don't, I, are you an author? Are you an editor? Are you like a publishing industry person? I don't know who you are. So it's when you're picking writing advice, take writing advice from writers whose writers, writers whose writing is actually good and that you like.
0: Right. Right or really good literary critics, like Mm -hmm. I've hyped this book before, but How Fiction Works by James Wood, legitimately really good. It's not a how-to guide, it's more of an analysis of like, let's break fiction down and look at how it works. So it's not a list of rules so much, or do's and don'ts, it's like, okay, let's examine how, you know, this writer in this passage kind of handles characterization, and I found it so much more helpful than all of the how-to guides. Yeah. But But let's go on with fucking Chuck Wendig and um, look into some of his amazing advice. So I'm gonna... I'm gonna read. Here's a passage. Yo, yo, yo. It's MC Protag in the house, Mother Fizzuckers. Generally, the main character and protagonist are the same. That isn't an automatic, however. A main character can be the narrator telling the story of a protagonist. But unless you're a particularly talented writer, that's probably going to suck a bucket of bubbly hippo spit.
1: So I hope he's never tried that.
0: (sighs) Yeah, well, I'll give him credit. He knows his audience. He assumes right off the bat that they are bad at writing and should not try. But (laughs) the main character and the protagonist generally aren't the same. Sometimes they are the fucking Great Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, Moby Dick.
1: Oh yeah, there's plenty. And a lot of them are really good. It's- They're really good. I have no problem with writing advice that acknowledges that a certain thing can be really difficult to pull off. Because that is something that can be hard to pull off. But just saying, Mm -hmm. yeah, don't try. It's like, come on. Worst thing they do is they try it and it's not that great. And then they learn from it theoretically or hopefully and whatever. But it's better to try it and maybe not be perfect than just wallow in mediocrity because someone says that it's kind of hard, especially Chuck Wendig. Who cares if Chuck Wendig (laughs) thinks things are hard? He probably thinks it's hard to put on his own shoes sometimes.
0: Next bit of Wendig advice. Commerce is not the enemy of art. If you think commerce somehow devalues art, then we're done talking. I got nothing for you. Money doesn't devalue art any more than art devalues money. Commerce can help art, hurt art, or have no effect. The saying isn't money is the root of all evil, it's the love of money is the root of all evil. Commerce only damages art when the purpose of the art is only money. So it is with your writing. Somehow I doubt that the love of art alone was what inspired Wendig to write Turok Volume 1, Blood Hunt. Like seriously, 90% of this guy's fiction isn't tie-in novels for a pre-existing movie or video game franchises. You don't write a fucking Turok book for the love of art. I'm sorry. (laughs)
1: yeah this is kind of like it's like nothing advice it's like
0: yeah money commerce is good or not sometimes and sometimes it's okay like this is meaningless
1: right and i don't know it's like if someone write wants to write like ghost write stupid bullshit to make money like who cares it doesn't devalue the art that people do that they're doing it because it's like a passion thing for them or because they care about the art just because some dweeb is writing bigfoot erotica because it sells somehow <laughs> like who cares it doesn't matter right
0: right and it plus i i would argue like this is kind of glossing over that there's a lot of problems with the fucking publishing industry like people who make it to the top it's not a meritocracy and a lot of really great stuff gets kind of passed over because it's not as marketable. It's not as profitable. It's not as sellable.
1: Yeah, it it seems like it... Uh, I just... I don't know. I just don't know what he's trying to say here. It's not very clear. For someone who's a writer, you would think he would be uh, better at communicating his ideas, but I got nothing. No,
0: no. It, it's just kind of meaningless, and it just feels kind of defensive. Like someone called him a hack.
1: I mean, he is the guy who tried to get the internet archive taken down, so...
0: I know... Oh, God.
1: Clearly, uh, he it definitely does sound offensive. It's like, it's fine to want money for your writing. We're like, yeah, no one said it's not, but...
0: Right. Anyway, so here's, here's the opposite in, of a bit of Kurt Vonnegut advice in, in an even more horrifying way, and I'm going to read it. Um, I, I suggest perhaps a content warning <laughs> over the next passage. Um, I want to buy the semicolon a private sex island. I love those winking little cheeky bastards like you wouldn't believe. You can't use them too often, but when you do, you use them to link two independent clauses without a conjunction like but or and. Mmm. Semicolons. Come to me, semicolon. Wink at me. Touch my man parts. Don't tell my wife. Wink. And then he does like a winky emoticon.
1: I hate everything about that. This makes me want to not use semicolons. Yeah, I, I'm
0: I I would like to call the police. Also he doesn't also he doesn't that's not really what a semicolon is used for. He misses he misses the bit where it's like okay the two linked sentences strongly share a theme or subject matter. Right. Like it's not a it's not a substitute for a period or but or and. It's its own unique thing.
1: Yeah, um ugh, I don't like that. It's
0: so I feel unclean.
1: Yeah. Mm-mm.
0: it's just uh, maybe a better, less molesty metaphor is that it's kind of like a screen door while like a period is more like a, a front door, you know?
1: Like a solid door you can't see through?
0: Yeah, like a solid door that you can't see through, air doesn't pass through.
1: Yeah, that that's a much um much better metaphor.
0: I also- d- A metaphor that, that doesn't make me want to contact QAnon.
1: Yeah. I also, uh, this is a guy that could use the- Cool it with the adjectives advice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bad. Okay. And here's something general that I noticed about Wendig's writing advice is that all of the illustrative examples he uses for writing techniques are from blockbuster movies. That's a huge red flag for me. Writing a screenplay is not the same as writing a novel or a short story. They're wildly different mediums. If you want to be good at writing books, you have to fucking read books. You have to fucking read books. His justification is that it's better to use blockbuster movies as examples because everybody's seen them. And I guess nobody reads books or his, well, no one who takes writing advice from Chuck Wendig reads books. But English class. (laughs) Right. Like We were all, yeah. Mm.
1: There's a set of books that is pretty, like, pretty well, like, Everyone's at least heard of them, if not read them. Like you'd be hard pressed yeah. to find, you know, a group of 10 people none of whom have read catcher in the rye or none of whom have read the scarlet letter or none of whom have read like Lord of the Flies, Great Gatsby's, any Shakespeare, like even there's some even if you just zoned out in your English class and didn't actually read you still probably caught some of the discussion. Like they're common cultural touchstones and they're much better right. to use writing advice since they're actually written and not filmed
0: right right i mean shakespeare you don't know what romeo and juliet is you can't read you can't refer to shakespeare you can't you can't even refer to that you can't refer to pride and prejudice like most people know what pride and prejudice is or at least they've seen a fucking movie adaptation or I something these aren't obscure works i've
1: actually never read pride and prejudice but it is so culturally present that i convinced myself that i had until i like thought yeah. about it and realized wait a minute i've actually never read this book
0: like you know who doc who you know who mr darcy is oh yeah Everyone knows who Mr. Darcy is, even if you haven't read it. And I and I find it appalling just this assumption that, like, well, no one's read these, no one's really read many books. And, like, okay, it might be harder to find books that everybody's read in common. But, like, if you went to high school in the United States, you've probably read some giant Steinbeck. You've probably read some Hemingway.
1: Yeah, and it's... <laughs> And the assumption that I guess probably everyone that would read Chuck Wendig writing advice probably does watch a lot of blockbuster movies. And I'm like, I don't know. There's a lot of blockbuster movies I've never seen. A lot of popularly referenced movies. I have never seen Grease. I've only seen mm-hmm. the second Terminator. I have not seen the first. Um, there's tons of movies that people, for whatever reason, don't see. So that whole, like, oh, I'm just trying to do something that everyone knows, it's like, no matter what you do, you're not going to get something that everyone knows. So get something that's actually right. in the correct medium.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. And it, it's just appalling to me, the idea that you're an aspiring writer who doesn't read. Like It's no, so mind-blowing to me.
1: Like, you would never, like, if someone who aspired to be a professional chef said they didn't like to eat or to cook, you would be just... Right mind boggled by that or if someone who was an actor said they didn't like to watch movies or watch plays that would or or read them like that would be weird but somehow or a musician who doesn't actually listen to music that would be absurd to anybody anybody would think that's weird but there I, and I see I hear a lot of people talk about, like I want to write but I don't really like to read and I'm like very confused by that and it's not just like I want to write I don't read a lot because I can't find the stuff that I like, which is more valid, you know, the whole, if you can't find it, make it yourself, but it's just, they don't, don't like to read like at all, even if it was something they would like, they don't like to read.
0: Yeah, but that's something I see a lot. And let's, let's uh, end with a brief discussion about bad writing groups. I know that you're a fan of the train wreck that is Reddit writing groups r slash writing r slash fed r slash fantasy writers, and I know that like Reddit is shooting fish in a barrel here. But the reason we're talking about this is because a lot of beginning writers go to forums like Reddit, to Book Twitter, to Wattpad, to try to sort of meet kindred spirits and develop their work, and they end up getting a lot of misguided advice, and it steers them in the wrong direction, and that's not a good thing it's it's terrible seeing a writer who's you know they're they're not there yet they're not great but they have kind of an interesting kind of unique view and watching people kind of hammer them into being more formulaic it's fucking horrifying
1: yeah i i joke a lot that if you want to see how the stupidest people alive will take your writing you post on reddit um yeah but there are like a lot of the thing that's so can be really difficult about those if you're not confident in yourself and you're you're new you're just starting out is that it's objectively in some ways it's an attractive forum like you post and you probably get some comments if you're on a bigger subreddit maybe not a ton of them unless you know something that you wrote really just like captures the the redditor attention but you're not like screaming into the ether usually someone will say something you will get some feedback it will probably be reasonably quick um but it may not be thorough it may not be good i know there's some writing subreddits where the whole point is to be like as there's it's called destructive readers i think and i looked at that mm. for a hot minute and i'm like this is just mean these people are more yeah. concerned with uh the brutality part of brutally honest than they are with the honesty cuz it gets really nitpicky right a lot of people in a in a bad i think the hallmark to me of a bad critique partner or a bad writing group is when people assume that um their tastes are universally the same as good writing so they'll give advice to make a story that if you took it you would make your story more like what they personally like instead of the best version of what it already is so you know i've had stuff where i've posted things and it's you know kind of a slow contemplative story uh there's not a whole lot of action and there's just senseless tragedy at the end there's nothing that the author did or not the author there's nothing that the character did to cause it there's nothing that the character could have done to prevent it and i got a lot of pushback on that because there wasn't so all these suggestions to uh, how to make this you know more action how to have the, the consequences be attached to it and i'm like that's not what i'm doing at all like that might be what you would like better but i don't know maybe right. i wasn't good enough at writing it to make it clear that that was kind of the point but
0: right
1: it was kind of uh, it wasn't great so i see that a lot and to me that's the most that's like the number one most frustrating thing when you're trying mm-hmm. to find someone to read your work and give you feedback is people who either can't or won't separate that sometimes the thing they subjectively like is not the best thing for that particular story and what the author is going for with it.
0: Right here. I'm going to sound a little snobby, but I think in a lot of these writing communities, there's sort of a problem of the blind leading the blind. These are a bunch of people who've never been published, giving their expertise. And it's like, how do you, how, how are you presenting yourself as an authority when you haven't been published? At all. Not even in a semi-pro. Yeah, Not Not even in like a we don't pay you.
1: Right. Not even in your high school literary magazine.
0: Yeah. Like who the fuck are you to give advice? What do you know, bub?
1: And it's people, It's they don't even have the expertise of being well-read, which doesn't actually cost you anything other than maybe the price of the books if you're not going to the library or, you know, there are ways like you can, you can read on the cheap.
0: Yeah. Honestly, if you Google any book title and PDF, you're going to find a PDF of it on the internet for free. Right. You're like, going to find it. You're going to find it. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> you can read for free. It's not hard. Yeah, there's Gutenberg.org has tons of like public domain novels that you can read. You don't need money to read. You do not need money to read at all.
1: Right. Time, yes. But a lot of the people on Reddit are like, they're high schoolers or even middle schoolers sometimes. They're like, you got more time.
0: Yep. And it's like, you got time to post, you got time to read. Okay. But that that I feel like is the biggest red flag in, in a writing group. If you're in a writing group and it's like, is this dragging me down? Is this holding me back? Look to what do the other members read?
1: Mm-hmm. Are they
0: reading anything? If the only books they're reading are like Harry Potter and, and you know, the, the big currently popular YA thing, like, get the fuck out. run for the hills this these people won't help you and also think like are are these people creating work that i respect in some way right
1: i think that's the, the biggest thing for me is i feel if i read someone's work and i'm like this is good i like this you know then i tend to be like okay cool like if you're writing stuff that i like then the advice that you give is probably going to be something that would be valuable to me it's kind of like the same thing with you know picking picking writing advice books like If you like Stephen King, then On Writing is probably a good book for you. It'll teach you how Stephen King writes, and you'll, you know, be able to kind of pick up what you like from that. If you like Ursula Le Guin, she has a book, uh, Steering the Craft, I think it's called. Uh, Then read her stuff. I don't know. I think it's just so important to know who is giving the advice and know whether or not it actually works. Not that there's not something to be said about, like, a completely, like, fresh reader. Because sometimes you do get really good insight from someone who isn't an expert. um, And there's some things that you don't have to be an expert. Like, if a sentence sounds really clunky and bad, you don't have to have a master's in English or a published novel or, or anything like that to know this sounds terrible. Like, we all have ears. Right. And we all have eyes. But... Some stuff you really want to go to someone who, even if they're not necessarily an expert, you respect their opinion.
0: Right, right, right. At least they've got something and, and they fucking read. Yeah. Um, and here's And here's a problem that I think is specific to genre writing communities. What I see in a lot of genre writing communities, and you said you saw this a ton in the fantasy writing communities on Reddit, is that they're only talking about genre elements like world building and there's nothing about craft. And craft is important no matter what genre you're writing in. An elegant sentence is an elegant sentence, whether it's about like a a bored housewife rediscovering her sexuality or, you know, dragons. Just dragons. The sentence craft matters wherever it is. And if if your writing community only talks about like, here's how my magic system works, you know, here's here's my world building, then that's a real fucking problem because sentence craft is incredibly important.
1: Even other elements too, not just the, the formal and mechanical aspect of the writing, but even like pacing, plot structure, character development, all of those things are important too. Like. In the green, I mean, maybe the nerds on Reddit really are blown away by a really cool setting and, like, everything else can be crap. But if the setting's really cool, they'll read it. But the average reader, what's going to hook them, it's going to be the characters, it's going to be the plot. If they're more aesthetically minded, it's going to be the writing. I don't really know anyone who's, like, just cool with reading something that, you know, basically could have been a tabletop RPG source book. Like, no one wants to read that. We want something with a good plot or good characters or good writing. The setting is kind of secondary.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I find that disturbing too, because it's like, I write genre. I write a lot of genre, but I'm not as obsessed with going like, well, how how does the robot work? Blah, blah, blah. I'm more interested in like, okay, how who's my character here? What's driving him?
1: Right. And I get a lot, I've gotten a lot of like, because um, I use genre elements but they tend to be somewhat sparing um i've gotten a lot of like you really should put more of that in here and i'm like there's there's too much of the domestic or the 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 character stuff you need to put more of the the genre elements and i'm like the genre elements in my stuff tend to be there to like amplify the human drama they're not really there on their own so and a whole community that kind of misses that that is one way you can do genre fiction and is, mm, it's not useful.
0: No, not at all, not at all.
1: The fantasy writer subreddit would be extremely useful if you were trying to come up with a tabletop RPG source book. Super useful, mm. that's what they need to be doing there.
0: Yeah, honestly, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think, I feel like a lot of times people say they're going to write a book, but what they really want to write is a screenplay or an RPG.
1: Yeah, all the time.
0: And it's like, no, go do that. Go do that. Go write your RPG. Go design your RPG. It, you'll have a blast. It could be a lot of fun. You're good at this.
1: Right. I, I even see some like published authors who I read their stuff or read about their stuff. And I'm like, this guy would make kick-ass RPG source books, but I have absolutely no interest in reading a novel by him.
0: <laughs> right. So let's wind it down. Where can we find you and support your work?
1: So I can be found on Twitter at ML underscore gremlin. Um, and it's it's mostly me posting dumb bullshit. Don't expect much wisdom there. <laughs> um, I have one published story in the August 2000, or not August, April 2019 of Enchanted Conversation magazine. Um, it's called Wolfskin. I would be delighted if you liked to read that. It's a fairy okay. tale.
0: And we will... We will include a link to it in the episode description.
1: Otherwise, I try to keep my presence somewhat minimal on the internet.
0: Yeah, that's reasonable. I should do that, but I don't. Anyway, well, thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you, listeners, for listening. If you're looking for a writing community that won't steer you the wrong way, try the Kitty Sneezes Discord. We've been holding group write-ins and giving each other feedback on our own projects. To get an invitation, sign up for our Patreon on the Literary Salon tier. It costs a dollar, that's it. You can sign up for a month and then drop out. We're not gonna kick you out. Or honestly, just message us on Twitter and show us how cool you are, and we'll send you an invitation. We get it, everybody's broke right now. A dollar is a packet of ramen, and maybe you need that ramen this month. Or, if if you do want to support us on Patreon, you can also sign up for the book club tier and get a bonus episode every month. And be sure to join us next time when we talk about the importance of rigorous cultural criticism. Until then, keep writing good. KittySneezes.com In Color